Welcome to Indie Matters, the show from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host, Joey Lovato, up here in Reno. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis down in Las Vegas. On this week's episode, reporter Diane Ohm talks with Douglas Kim, a master sommelier, about wine, achieving his prestigious title, and what his job involves on the Las Vegas Strip. After that, Reno podcaster Phil Corbett joins us to share excerpts of a story he reported on his own show called The Wind, about a controversial new ordinance in Reno affecting the use of whips in downtown. Homeless residents have been using homemade bullwhips, but police say they've become a nuisance and scare the public. At the end of the show, I sit down with our new education reporter, Rocio Hernandez, to talk about her time as a student in the Clark County School District and her reporting career that brought her through Utah and Arizona before coming back to Las Vegas. Also, we have an opportunity this week to win some free Indie Matters swag. All you need to do is leave a review wherever you listen to the podcast and let Joey know by emailing him at joey at the or sending him a DM on Twitter. Last December, MGM Resorts appointed Douglas Kim as Director of Wine, a position that oversees a stock of 350,000 bottles of wine and a staff of 50 sommeliers at the casino's dozens of restaurants and bars along the Las Vegas Strip. But Kim's path to the top of the wine world hasn't been typical. Reporter Diane Ohm has more. Since the Corda Master Sommelier was founded in 1969, only 172 Americans have earned the organization's top title, Master Sommelier. It's a grueling, years-long process to earn that title, which means the organization has served as a gatekeeper for wine's high-flying elite class for decades. But the certifying organization has also been criticized for a lack of diversity. Of those 172 American Master Sommeliers, 144 are men and only 28 are women. Even fewer master sommeliers are people of color. Douglas Kim is one of three Korean-American master sommeliers. His past started when he and his family immigrated from South Korea to a Chicago suburb when he was two years old. Fast forward 30 years and Kim has one of the most coveted careers in the hospitality industry as the director of wine for MGM Resorts. I think the beauty of wine is that there's so many out there, you'll never get to taste everything, and mm-hmm. there's always something new to smell and taste. So what exactly is a sommelier? The word refers to a wine steward or a trained wine professional, and there are four levels of sommelier certification through the Court of Master Sommelier, Introductory, Certified, Advanced, and Master. While many sommeliers reach the certified or advanced level, There are a limited number of master sommeliers due to the extensive wine knowledge and advanced wine tasting skills required. Those who take the test face three challenges, theory, service, and blind tasting. Candidates are asked not only about the region and the year of wine, but they are also questioned on its distilling methods, ideal food pairings, and more. Only 3-8% to of applicants typically pass the master sommelier exam. According to Kim, the fastest a person can achieve the master sommelier status is six years, while some take as long as 20. It took Kim 10 years. For my own journey, you know, I passed the intro when I was 21, my certified when I was 22, mm-hmm. passed advanced when I was 24, but the masters, I was able to pass the service and the theory portion, but the blind tasting was the one that kind of always caught me in the loop, so it took me about five attempts to pass that okay. tasting part. 
When asked if he ever considered giving up the master sommelier exam, he said he has struggled, but the thought never crossed his mind. When I took it for the first time, the master exam, I was married, but I didn't have kids yet, and then I had two kids along the way, and then it kind of gets to be a lot. But it's something that I always wanted to do. I guess I never really, I never wavered that I didn't want to take it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I definitely was upset and angry when things didn't go your way, but I mean, that's just the, the, the process. I mean, it only made me more knowledgeable, uh, more hungry to actually get to the, to the, to the finish line. Kim took a three-week mandatory wine class when he studied at the Culinary Institute of America, and it solidified his focus on wine. He moved to Las Vegas after graduating from UNLV with a bachelor's degree in hospitality management. Kim's parents helped him find a job at Restaurant Charlie, owned by the late restaurateur and celebrity chef Charlie Trotter. His parents' dry cleaning business was down the street from Trotter's restaurant in Chicago. Kim quickly rose among the ranks. He has worked as a sommelier at Mandalay Bay's Oreo and as a wine director at the two Michelin-starred Picasso restaurant in Bellagio. At his current job, Kim is more focused on the back end of operations. He works with close to 50 sommeliers in different restaurants to understand their needs and to curate wine lists specific to a restaurant. On the front side, it, it seems very glamorous, but there's a lot of a lot of work that goes into job. You have to have obviously knowledge of wines and um, you know, trends and pricing and supply chain issues and mm-hmm. you know stuff that everybody deals with. But you know, having to work with each of the properties and their needs, and it can be it can be pretty grueling. But at the end of the day, it is it is wine, and it is it is a luxury to be in this position and uh, deal in this industry. So I take all the good with the bad because if it was all good, then what fun would that be? Kim said he wants to expand both the market for wine and education opportunities in South Korea. And especially in Korea, the barrier to wine in Korea is very high. Mm-hmm. It's very expensive over there, yeah. taxes of course. But we're seeing more and more people enjoying wines. So I don't know the last time you went to Korea, but you know, you go to all the department stores, they have that fine wine selection. And yeah. I walk around there, I'm like, oh my gosh, these are super expensive. How can you, you know, order yeah. these wines? But uh, there are people that enjoy The restaurants are, you know, a lot more Western cuisine being brought into Korea as well. And mm-hmm. They would need something to pair with that too. So it's great. As Kim noted, Koreans have only recently incorporated wine into their meals. Growing up in rural parts of Korea, I am more used to seeing my relatives drink soju or makgeolli, which is fermented rice wine, than a bottle of Merlot or Chardonnay with their dinner. But talking with Kim about his passion and knowledge about wine sparked an interest in how to enjoy liquor. Not for the purpose of getting drunk, but for the purpose of finding different flavors and analyzing their origins. Kim said every person's palate is different. Depending on the person, they might enjoy a different flavor, texture, or balance. As you develop your palate, you'll say, oh, I like this about wine or I like that about wine. And you can communicate to the sommelier if you go to a restaurant, like, hey, I like wines that have, you know, strong, drippy tannins and, you know, higher in alcohol, more powerful versus something that's, you know, more delicate, more perfumed, softer bodied, kind of a creamier texture wine. I mean, you know, the tasting wines for fun, you say, hey, I just like this, but that doesn't translate into sharing it with other people right so you can just, I, I understand i like it but why do i like it i think is something that people should think about as they're drinking the wine but i but any, honestly just just drinking wine in general is probably the the start and seeing what you like and go from there
Find out more about Master Sommelier Douglas Kim and his love of wine in the story by Diane, published on our website, thenevadaindependent.com. You can also watch a short video from photographer Daniel Clark and video producer Tim Leonard there as well. Well, Joey, I must confess, I know nothing about wine. I, I don't either, but if we uh, ever visit uh, Mr. Kim, hopefully maybe he can teach us a little bit about uh, about wines. Um, and our next story is, is nothing to do with wines. <laughs> it has more to do with uh, Reno and a very interesting phenomenon that is going on in downtown with whips. That's right, Joey. And we have a local Reno podcaster and a former member of the band that no longer exists that wrote our theme music, Phil Corbett. He is on the show to help explain. Yeah, this is an adapted version of a longer story that Phil worked on on his podcast called The Wind, which focuses on sound and and kind of the environments that we live in, especially up here in northern Nevada. All right, well, I'm here with Phil Corbett. He is the, the producer, the editor, the creator behind the podcast The Wind. So thanks for joining me, Phil. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, and so this episode that we're talking about, it's about whips in Reno. Something that if you don't live in Reno, you probably don't know about. And if you do live in Reno, you might not even know about it. It's like really grown in popularity. It's something that's become a thing over the last four to five years. They've become pretty ubiquitous in downtown Reno. Yeah. And so, I mean, like, I'm just curious, how did this phenomenon begin? I mean, you've been reporting on the story for a pretty long time. So the exact starting point is hard to tell for sure. For me, the first time I started noticing it, I was living in downtown on Park Street. And I remember just hearing these pops down by the river and trying to figure out like what it was. Then I saw a guy walking up Park Street one day in the middle of the street and he had this big bullwhip and he was just cracking it walking up the street. And I was like, oh, that's what that sound is that I've been hearing. And so from there, it just, I got really fascinated with it. And I slowly started noticing in the beginning about a half dozen people who all had different bullwhips. It's a hobby. And we wrap them ourselves and they come together and we try each other's out. This is Monica Plummer. Usually you get given one and then you, you have to make one. And then then you can start giving them away. You make one and give it away or whatever, and you just pass it down. You were just saying that, that like, the whips are something you can actually use for... Of course, yeah. like when we're going down the, the trail in the nighttime and there's skunks and raccoons. Well, we had a bear down here, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, so that, that crack is very useful to make them go away, for sure. So this has become, in some people's view, a, a problem, right, in downtown Reno. There's been a lot of, of like, 911 calls. 911, where's your emergency? I just got a report of shots fired down the Truckee River. It looks like we're on the way down, and it's possible there's a subject with a whip. Can you help you? Oh, hi. Uh, thank you. My name's Matt, and uh, I was just going to see if there's any chance an officer might be able to swing by. Uh, I know you guys are super busy, but on 1st and West Street, 
there's a guy that's been whipping the whip for probably three days. You know, I, I thought after three days it might get better, but it, tonight he's just going at it. What's the address of your emergency? The problem is coming from the Wingfield Park with bull whips, sounding like gunshots all today, nonstop. At Wingfield Park? Correct. In that little plaza there where all the dirt bags are, that's where the bull whip's coming from. Did you get a description of the person? They're all the same. Okay. They're homeless people. Who's carrying these whips? Yeah, so the people that are carrying the whips is kind of a debate in itself within City Hall. Like, I found a clip of the mayor saying during a city council meeting, it's not just homeless people carrying the whips. But in my reporting, and I think the general understanding of this phenomenon is that it's mostly unsheltered people that are carrying the whips and cracking them. And before I started reporting, it seemed to be a big part of that community. And as I went through the reporting process, it became very clear that that was the entirety of the community. Every single whipper that I asked, every single one of them identified explicitly as homeless. This is rough. This is really rough. And it's really scary sometimes. And what do you mean by this? Like being out here homeless? I mean, it's not even just part of the homeless community. I mean, people that have whips, have have apartments and stuff like that. I mean, I had an apartment, <laughs> you know, so. Yeah, I mean, does it, does it make you feel safer to have one? Absolutely. I'm alone. I don't have a boyfriend or anything like that. So it's important for me to feel safe. And I don't have knives. I don't carry a knife. So... <laughs> But it's nice to know that my family's out here with me. And if I crack my whip, somebody will crack theirs. What are the reasons that they they are carrying these whips? It was something that I was really fascinated with figuring out. Not only did it seem like this whole culture and this aesthetic language around these things, but it seemed like there was more than just some kind of fun hobby element to it. And slowly I began to piece together this collage of reasons why people do it. Uh, Hatchet, they call me Hatchet. Once it got started, just it, it's come naturally, and you just it's it's, it's addicting. Yeah, there's uh, more. So there's more to it than just cracking the whip. I ask him what it feels like when he does crack it. It's like me putting on a music. When I'm mute my headphones and I have my whip in my hand, there's, there's no like no telling me something. I'm just in the zone. I just like subscribe. I'm in the zone. Is it like? Do you think it's about power or control at all? Uh, release. Yeah, it's more like releasing. Like when I because when I that, that helps me when I get angry, when I get sad or something, when I just pick up my whip. It helps me release it to where I'm not. I usually I used to, I used to get physical with people and stuff getting when I get angry. But not anymore. Once I, once I start doing the whip, cracking the whip, they, I just get released all that. Like I just, I don't feel like a, like one of the like a mean body in my in my soul, dude. It's crazy. Huh. It's like part of me now. So what what is the ordinance at the moment? Yeah. So the ordinance is RMC eight eighteen zero three five, the unlawful use of a whip, and basically it amends a weapons ordinance in downtown Reno to include whips as a specific type of weapon similar to like brass knuckles. So there's a basically a big box drawn around downtown and possession of a whip is illegal in that zone. And you could be ticketed just for the mere possession of the whip. Yeah. And talk to me about the debate that went on when this was presented. It was presented by the Reno Police Department, right? And then what, what were the people saying that, you know, we're pro this and what were the people that were against this ordinance saying? 
Yeah. So in August of 2021, Ryan Connolly, Lieutenant Ryan Connolly with the Reno Police Department, basically just made a PowerPoint presentation in front of the city council asking them to outlaw bullwhips. First, there was public comment, and then there was the city council debate where they spoke to each other and to Ryan Connolly. The public opinion debate was generally in two camps. One of them was, these things are annoying, they're scary, they're intimidating, and they're loud, and we want them outlawed. We're on item A3, which is public comment. If you're ready, I'll go ahead and move forward. I enjoy the public spaces. Um, the last couple of years, it gets worse and worse. 3 a.m. in the morning, it's simulated gunfire, and it's a means of intimidation. And as far as I'm not one to make laws like the voting laws that we're coming up with around the country that are somewhat discriminatory, uh, but I don't believe that's the case here. The police keep telling me they can't do anything about it because it's not considered a weapon. So I went up to the uh, old uh, country store up here, and I bought a uh, an inexpensive whip because I was going to bring it just to show you. Well, the guys out here says it's a weapon, so it's in a trash can out here. Then on the other side, there were mostly advocates for houseless people saying this just criminalizes homelessness. This is something that is used as stress relief, used as a shared craft, used as a hobby, and outlawing this will make it more dangerous for houseless people to be in downtown because they'll be more likely to get tickets that they can't pay. They'll be more likely to be arrested. Hello. Um, so I'm speaking in opposition of the whip ban. You know, I mean, if there's if there's an issue of them attacking people with the whips, that should be a an assault thing. And there's already laws in place for that. So why are we doing this? Why are we making criminals out of people over something that helps them? And so this ordinance passed. It's 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 law now. What has been the result of that? So I continued reporting after it passed, after the ordinance passed, and everybody I spoke to who whipped said that they had no plans on stopping. I've been here for about 14 years, and uh, I plan on staying for a little bit longer, and I, and I damn sure I'm about to keep on cracking my whips and making them. And then let's zoom out here a little bit and talk about the broader homelessness issue that's happened in, in, in Nevada. And specifically in Reno, I think it's always been, it's always a debate. It's always a topic that's happening in city council. What does this mean for homelessness in a, in a broader sense? So from 2015 to 2021, houselessness, people with no roof over their head at all, grew 690%. So it's a staggering growth of houselessness in our community. And with that, as you see in a lot of cities across America, there's increasing criminalization of homelessness in general, you know, not being able to sit on a sidewalk, things like that, where it seems like pretty innocuous laws to the the random Reno citizen, but they do have huge impacts on the people who are actually facing this and the people who are in these incredibly scary and difficult and terrible situations living outside and dealing with harassment, dealing with assault, dealing with all all types of just 
really unimaginable things. In the whole process, as far as I could tell, no people who actually made whips and cracked whips were consulted. None of them helped write the law. None of them were in city council speaking about why they did it. It was entirely a law written and agreed upon by people who were outside of that community. I, I'm also curious, why Reno? What What is it about Reno? I, this isn't something that I've heard is going on in other places. Is this, I'm, I'm so curious, like how, how this happened in, in, in Reno, Nevada, of all places. I can't say for sure exactly what's going on. I think that there is some sort of tie in with our like Western culture. That said, I really can't say for sure why it happened here and not in Salt Lake City or Denver. It is something that is pretty unique to hear, though I will say in the police presentation, they mention that this is based on a law that was recently passed in Kauai. And I spoke to a city council member in Kauai who said that they passed the law because there was one guy <laughs> who was cracking a whip outside of City Hall, and they found it to be annoying. So they passed this law making the whip illegal. Well, if you want to learn even more about uh, about the whippers, you can you can listen to your your full episodes an hour long. You have lots of interviews and and and, and public records. It's a really interesting episode. And what's the episode called? It's called The Whip Law. It can be found at thewind.org or wherever you listen to podcasts. All right. Well, Phil, thanks for talking to me today and for reporting on the story. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right, well, now you know a little bit more about whips in Reno, uh, especially if you see them when you're uh, walking around downtown. And now we've got another segment. Uh, Jacob, what's our next segment about? That's right. We chatted with our newest reporter, Rocio Hernandez, who chats a little bit about uh, the Clark County School District, where she got her education and where I got my education. All right. Well, I'm here with Rocio Hernandez, our new education reporter. And, and Rocio, just to start off, I mean, you, you're from Las Vegas. You're from Nevada. You've had a history here and then you moved away and, and now you're back. So welcome. Welcome back to your home state to report on education. So to, to start off, let, let's talk about your history here in Nevada. You grew up in Clark County, right? And where'd you, where'd you go to school and stuff? Yeah, yeah. I uh, went to elementary, middle and high school in Clark County. I was actually thinking about what to say before we got on. I had some really great memories with my elementary school. I don't know if it's still there, but it's this little school called Ollie Detweiler in West Las Vegas. And back when I was a kid there, I remember the principal, Mr. Namba, he used to be so fun. We used to have, they called it like Otter of the Month. So like you were selected to be, I don't know, like if you were academically achieving or something, they would select you to go to a pizza party. And it was like this exclusive thing. And I was honor of the month multiple, multiple times. So I had <laughs> lots of fun doing that. Some really great memories of going to school here in Las Vegas. And so it's it's nice and it feels very full circle to be back in Las Vegas after a while. I went to college in Reno and after graduating, I really left to cover news in Arizona, then Utah, then back to Arizona again, and then back here in Las Vegas. So just been doing a little loop around the West. 
Yeah, well, it's, I mean, hey, Arizona and Utah are pretty similar to, to Nevada in some ways. Or they're like our sister states. <laughs> so have you always been covering education since you started professionally reporting? My first beat was immigration. In Utah, that was the first thing that I started doing. And I think eventually, I think our education reporter in the Salt Lake NPR station that I worked at decided to take a new job. And I saw that as an opening for me to do something else because Latino issues, immigration issues are something I'm really near and dear to my heart. My parents are from Mexico, so that's obviously something very personal to me. But I really wanted to try to do something new and something different. And what I really love about covering education is that it's a beat that crosses multiple areas. Like you could talk about socioeconomic issues. You could talk about race and diversity issues. And you could talk about policy all day long. So I just felt like it's a beat that allows me to do and be everything and cover vast varieties of the community. And it's so great to be able to go into schools and meet students. Those are some of the best stories when you actually can go and experience schools and see stuff through students' eyes. Yeah. What What do you think is unique about the Nevada school system, you know, CCSD, Washoe County, and then all the rural school districts compared to Utah and Arizona? Well, so one of the things that's most different is we've got what, a limited a number of school districts here. So what I'm used to is Salt Lake and Phoenix, where I was based in, have a lot of school districts all located within these metro areas. And here in Nevada, we've got our school districts broken up by counties. So that's one big difference for me. I think in Arizona, where I was last in, I think we had around 600 school districts. So now I'm a little grateful to be covering a little less school districts and hoping that that allows me to make better connections with each one of those districts and really want to make sure that I get out and talk to rural areas, talking a lot to Washoe County school district, and make sure that we are representing not just the districts too, but we're also representing the charter schools, the private schools, the students that are homeschooled. Yeah. And I'm curious, like you said, you went to school here and then you left. Has leaving and coming back given you a fresh lens on on the dynamics that are going on at the school districts in Nevada? Yeah, I think, I mean, obviously when I was in high school, I don't think I was really paying attention much to what was going on, but I definitely noticed that like, there's a lot of disparities in terms of funding. So I went a lot to Title I schools. And then I remember that in eighth grade, my mom transferred me to a school in the Centennial area. And when I moved over to that nice new school, I was like blown away because they had new computers, they had new textbooks, and it was something I was never used to. And and it felt really weird to me to be at this school and for once be a minority student. There wasn't a lot of Latino students. So for once, like be somewhere that like really disrupted me and got me out of my comfort zone. And then for high school, I went back to another Title I school and it was just a whiplash, right? Our school didn't have the newest or the most up-to-date things. And I don't think that's changed much since I've been a student in the CCSD. It's been like 10 years. You'll always see disparities in neighborhoods. What are some of the stories that you're looking to report on as you as you dig your teeth into education in Nevada? We're, we're kind of in a time where things are starting to get back to the quote unquote normal. I think the pandemic brought up a lot of issues that have always been there. So it will be interesting to follow up and see how schools are recovering from these past two years. And we're still not out of the pandemic. We're not out of the woods yet. And there's a lot of issues that were brought up. A lot of people are throwing around terms like learning loss. What were students missing out on these past two years? 
not only academically, but socially and emotionally. So it'll be interesting to follow all of that in the recovery for the students. And then there's a lot of issues and there's a lot of hot button topics that we'll always cover. But the other thing I also really want to do is bring up the good things that schools are doing. So it's not all bogged down by like the gloom and doom. It's really easy to write stories about like problems, the shortage of bus drivers, shortage of teachers. I think there's a, we should also take moments to celebrate the good things that our schools are doing and the good things that our teachers and administrators and our students are doing because there are good things in the community. So hoping that with everyone's help, find some of those positive stories so we're not all depressed all the time. <laughs> yes, I like I love that. I love finding those fun, positive stories, those human interest pieces and stuff like that. Well, I guess to wrap up, I just want to hear you, you have some some dogs that, you, <laughs> that you've brought back to Nevada. We always love an indie pet and you've, you've brought a couple, right? Yeah, so I've got two little poodle boys. Bruno, I picked up in Phoenix um, because it was my first time living away from home and not being in my college community. And then I picked up Winslow in Salt Lake City. And so now I've got a, a Salt Lake dog and a Phoenix dog. And maybe you should look to add a Vegas dog in my collection. <laughs> well, yeah, we'll have to add, add more indie pets. The more indie dogs, the better. That's what I always say. Don't tell the cat people on the team that, though. <laughs> All right. Well, Arocio, I, I really appreciate it. And, and I can't wait to, to hear more of you reporting. Yeah, thanks. Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters. We'd like to thank Douglas Kim, Diane Ohm, Phil Corbett, and Rocio Hernandez for being on the show this week. This show is produced and edited by Joey, with additional editing help from Michelle Rendells, Riley Snyder, and Jackie Valley. If you want to support the show, leave us a rating and review wherever you listen, and email us with questions, comments, concerns, the hottest trends in powerline technology, or whatever else is on your mind, at joey at theenvyindy.com or jacob at theenvyindy.com. Our theme song is from the band People With Bodies, and we have additional music from Storyblocks and original music from Joey. Thank you for listening to Indie Matters. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis. And we'll talk to you next week. Don't claw the chair, though, Roxy. Okay. <laughs> Oh my god, she jumped on my chair. Roxy, no.